Welcome to Making Coffee, a behind-the-scenes look at what goes into making one of the world's favorite beverages. I'm your host, Lucia Solis, a former winemaker turned coffee processing specialist. Thanks for joining this week's episode. Welcome to episode 20. This is a very special episode because I'm answering listener questions today. But not just any listeners. These questions come from Patreon supporters of the podcast. When I was planning this podcast, I knew that I wanted it to be a community-supported project and that I didn't want to rely on advertisements or sponsors because I find that they can be kind of annoying or distracting to the type of information that I want to share. So if you enjoy listening and get value out of these episodes, please share with a friend and consider making a monthly pledge to keep them coming. With the price of one specialty cup of coffee a month, you get to put your money where your values are. And there are currently 53 people who have taken that step. The Patreon supporters are a group of individuals who care about coffee education and support me in this project. They have made a monthly pledge to keep this information free and available to everyone. And it's with their help that I can pay for equipment upgrades like a better microphone, I can pay the subscription for the editing software I use and cover the monthly hosting fees, and their contribution also allows me to take some time away from consulting so that I can document and record these episodes. And as part of their membership, Patrons submit questions, and I often answer them privately in the message chats, but today I wanted to share some of them and record them here on the podcast so we can all learn from each other. Today we're going to explore if a short, hot fermentation can get the similar results to a slow, cool one. Then I will share how I design fermentations for my clients. Then we have a question about how post-harvest process changes the density of the seed. And then we will see what can happen when you introduce foreign yeast strains, like the ones used in beer, into a coffee farm. Do they take over? And lastly, I'll share with you where you can find some yeast-treated coffee if you'd like to try some for yourself. And if you'd like to hear if one of your questions has already been answered, you can also check out episode 11, which is also completely listener questions. Okay, let's get started and jump straight into the first question. Hi, Lucia. I'm Thijs. I work in the quality department at Bennett's Green Coffee Traders in Australia. What I would like to know is, what is a more important variable in fermentation, temperature or time? And on the same page, could you get the same end result by fermenting longer with lower temperatures versus shorter on higher temperatures? Obviously, this within certain ranges. I know certain temperatures will kill the yeast and or bacteria. Thanks again for all your insights and stories. Cheers, Thijs. This is a common question, and I think it's natural to want to create a hierarchy of important variables. After all, in science experiments, we are taught to only change one variable at a time and then observe what happens. However, if you've ever been to a coffee mill, you'll know that it's a far cry from a research laboratory. When you are experimenting in situ, it is much harder to change a single variable at a time. And fun fact, I originally wanted to name this podcast in C2 in reference to applying science on site in real locations instead of in vitro where most of the research takes place. And another bad title idea I had was to call the podcast Original Work. This was because I saw so many headlines and magazine articles referencing studies, but there was rarely a discussion of the original work that led to those conclusions. This is an issue because data can be interpreted in different ways. Sometimes, when you read how they set up the experiment, or see that it was only done twice, or maybe it was a really small sample size, sometimes the conclusion doesn't hold up. 
Scientists are not infallible and they can be biased too, and we also want to consider who is paying for the study and what outcome would benefit them. If you only read the title and the conclusion of a scientific study, you will miss out on the opportunity to see alternative explanations. When you take the time to read the whole paper, you can come to a different conclusion than the researcher did or the person who wrote the article. And sometimes the person who wrote the article about the paper didn't read the whole paper themselves. So science is not really as straightforward and infallible as we would like to think. So I wanted to focus on the original work, the whole research papers, and not just the conclusions. Anyway, that was entirely way too much time, and we have enough basics to cover in the meantime. Maybe if I get enough Patreon support that I can dedicate more of my time to the podcast, this is where I would like the podcast. This is the direction that I'd like to head in. But anyway, back to the problems of experimenting. So it's not just in a coffee mill that experiments are difficult. In microbiology, it's difficult to isolate a single variable. But even if it were possible, it often doesn't provide the information that we want. In microbiology, we are interested in systems more than a single variable. We want to know how the system behaves and how those variables interact within the system. Part of the problem arises when we don't consider the whole system and try to look at a single variable and pretend it's independent, pretend that it exists outside of the system. Putting aside the difficulty of isolating variables, Tice's thinking on this is quite logical. In general, heating a reaction will also speed it up. Hotter usually does equal faster. For example, cold water in a pot heats up more quickly if you add more heat to the system by turning up the flame. Or if we think about cooking in a slow cooker like a crock pot. One option is to gather all of your ingredients and cook them on the stovetop for 30 minutes on high heat. But another option is you can put all of the ingredients in a pot on low heat in a crock pot for 6 to 8 hours. With either method, you start with raw vegetable ingredients and you can either apply high heat for a short amount of time or low heat for a long time, and at the end, you will still have a similar stew that you can eat. But cooking is a chemical reaction, and chemical reactions are more likely to behave in this linear way. Biological reactions, on the other hand, are more dynamic. We shouldn't think of them in a linear way or try to use temperature as a dial for speed. This is partly because of what Tice already mentioned, that certain temperature ranges, either too hot or too cold, can kill microbes and severely impair their function. But even if you avoid the temperature extremes and avoid harming the microbes, changing the temperature of the fermentation will affect its speed. So this means that you can slow down or speed up, but you will also create other effects that are not linear or easy to predict. Microbes have different temperature ranges where they perform in an optimum manner. In this way, we can think of them kind of like people. So for me, personally, I struggle in the freezing snowy winters in Ohio, but I thrive in the tropical heat of Guatemala. In January in Ohio, I very much stay inside and pretty inactive until it warms up. But I have a neighbor who seems impervious to the cold. In the newsletter for this podcast, I included a picture of me next to my neighbor who wears shorts all winter long while I am standing next to him shivering in full body gear. He was born in Ohio, and to him it's normal. Regardless of the temperature, he goes about his business as usual. We are both present, but I'm hibernating in my house, and he's out and about in the neighborhood, going to restaurants, riding his bike, doing yard work, etc. So if I just wait a couple of months, then Ohio gets really hot in the summer, and that's when I like to come out and ride my bike and go to restaurants and do yard work. And it's at this time that my neighbor feels uncomfortable, and he spends more of his time indoors with the AC. 
So think about temperature in a fermentation kind of like this, that changing the temperature opens up a new window of opportunity for different microbes to come out and play. Depending on the length of the fermentation, you can have many microbes keeping each other in balance, or you can force a temperature that causes a new species to eventually dominate and potentially change the fermentation. So a fast and short fermentation would absolutely not yield the same end result as a slow, low temperature one, because the identity of the microbes are different. If the microbes are different, the precursor compounds are different, meaning the flavor when it's roasted is also different. And another way you could have a different result is that instead of changing the population, meaning changing the identity, it's possible that the same microbe would behave differently at different temperatures. A different temperature might trigger the same microbe into a different pathway. A different pathway would also result in different flavors. So for example, some lactic acid bacteria are homofermentative, meaning they create a single end product like lactic acid. Others are heterofermentative, and they can create lactic acid, but if conditions change, they can adapt and create ethanol and acetaldehyde. So maybe if you have a fermentation that is predominantly homofermentative bacteria, you can warm up the fermentation and get similar end results in less time. But if you have predominantly heterofermentative bacteria, the same strategy will not work for you. This is how it's possible for someone to say they tried heating up the fermentation and got terrible results, and someone else tried heating up the fermentation and got amazing results, and they can both be right, because the identity of their tank is different. So instead of trying to separate variables and create a hierarchy, think about how these variables interact. And you don't just want to consider time and temperature. You also want to think about oxygen availability, which, if you remember the last episode, is a spectrum. It's not binary like anaerobic or aerobic. It's an entire spectrum with different levels of, of oxygen affecting the microbes. Um, you also want to think about the water activity. You want to think about the pH and any other nutrients that are available, like nitrogen. And then you want to consider the variety of the coffee and then the ripeness of that variety. However, those are a lot of things to keep in mind, and when I'm talking to producers, I pick the element that is the easiest to manipulate, which is actually time. It's much easier to have two tanks of coffee and leave one for 24 hours and the other one for 48 hours. But temperature is not so easy. Because it's tough in a traditional mill to say that one tank should be one temperature and the other tank should be a different temperature. Because it's difficult for most coffee producers to purposely change the temperature of their tanks. In beer and wine tanks, they are usually hooked up to glycol, and they can be cooled and warmed with the push of a button. I have seen producers who use ice to cool the fermentation, or keep tanks in a cold room, or can drag them out into the sun to warm them up. So it's very possible, but it requires more effort and creativity than starting with uh, time as, as a factor. So manipulating time is not more important than manipulating temperature, it's just the easiest one when you're working on a coffee mill. Okay, next question. Hi, Lucia. My name is Ariel, and I live in Cordoba, Argentina. Uh, currently, uh, I am a PhD student in material sciences, but I am also the owner of a small roastery called Momo Tostadores. After listening to you for 16 episodes, I'm very curious about how you decide when and how to ferment. How do you control it? I can imagine you check the temperature and the pH, but do you ever do cultures? How do you characterize the cherries? In other words, what are the key variables you use or check when you're trying to decide what to do with them? 
Thank you very much for taking the time to listen to our questions. And I want to let you know that Christopher Ferran's blog and your podcast are the best things in this rather troublesome 2020. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you for this question, Ariel, and for your kind words. Um, yes, you guys, if you're craving going deeper into green coffee and roasting, I also recommend you check out Christopher's blog. He's got a great piece about ro roasting during the times of corona and also using UV light to grade green coffee and a whole bunch of other stuff. He has a, if you're a sourdough uh, fan, he's also got a lot of stuff on there on his blog. So I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Okay, so one thing I want to clarify is that my main decision in deciding how to ferment depends entirely on my client's needs. So I'm not a researcher who is studying microbes to get a particular outcome or to necessarily learn something. I'm a consultant who is trying to solve existing problems. This is another reason why changing the temperature is not the first tool I use to change a fermentation. Temperature changes can work really well when you're doing an experiment for a nano lot of, say, like 50 pounds, um, but I personally hate nano lots and micro lots. I don't want the producer to create micro lots. I want the producer to be able to scale and ferment several tons. So it can be easy to get some ice and cool a few bags of coffee, but it's way more expensive if that creates a profile that you really like. And now to make it scalable and to make it, you know, actually production levels, you need to refrigerate your entire 5,000 square foot mill. So before I design anything, I ask myself, can we translate this to be 10 times bigger or 100 times bigger? If the answer is no, I usually don't even bother doing it in miniature, and I find another way that works that we can scale. Because there's not one right way, right? There's, there's many paths that can lead to a really good cup of coffee. So I don't bother going down the paths that are going to continue to keep this coffee to be very small. So other times, what I try to do is keep the same profile, and um, maybe because that profile has been working for them, but try to make that process easier. So maybe keeping their 85-point coffee, um, but making that same coffee by using a quarter the amount of water, or perhaps less electricity, or cut the time in half so that we can have higher throughput, or perhaps to use less people so that the labor is, is lower, so labor costs are lower. And this is really my preferred method, is to figure out how to process differently and keep the profile that is already working for them. Or perhaps improve it a little bit, but just make things easier and, like I said, remove steps instead of adding more things. And this also helps when the client hasn't tapped into buyers that are willing to pay more for coffee yet. So by reducing the cost of production, um, it's just another way to tackle that issue. And like I mentioned in my previous answer, temperature is hard to change on a large scale, so the easiest place to start is time. Um, another thing that I do that he asked about is, yes, I do use yeast starter cultures to help establish a baseline. I think this is a misconception about my work. Um, I'm not trying to use yeast to change a particular profile uh, or to make one place taste like another place. I use them more like training wheels on a bicycle. So we, we can use them in the beginning to learn a new skill, and then you're so good at riding your bicycle that you don't need the training wheels anymore. So a lot of the times, once my clients learn the fundamentals, it's up to them if they want to keep using the cultures because they found a profile they like, or they can completely stop using them and still get really good consistent results um, in other ways. So my goal is just to show that the options are available. You can use training wheels, you could not use training wheels, or you can move on to, to something else. 
another thing that he mentioned was the cherry. Yes, characterizing the cherry is very important because that's the starting material. That's the fuel for the fermentation. The same microbes will behave differently if their fuel changes. So remember a little bit what we talked about before with the homo versus hetero fermentative. Um, but we can also think about it as uh, like a human example. So think about how differently you feel if you only ate candy for 24 hours straight um, versus a different day where you had, you know, maybe oatmeal for breakfast, you had a salad for lunch and vegetables for dinner. Your energy, the way that you manage it, the way that you feel and the way that you behave during those two days is going to be pretty different. And, and microbes are similar. If you give them junk food, they get very active and bubbly. Um, but when the sugar high ends, they can get cranky and stressed. And this is a problem because stressed yeast equals bad aromas. So again, we can think of the human analogy of how when we get stressed and we're very anxious, we begin to sweat and our body does not smell good. So when I worked in the wine industry and it was harvest time, meaning that all of the grapes were fermenting in the tanks, um, the fermentations were monitored during the day, obviously. Um, we had very long shifts. But then overnight, no one was there to watch the tanks. So sometimes during the night, the tanks would build up momentum and start to ferment faster. And this increased rate of the temperature would stress the yeast. And this means that, okay, so you have the fermentation going faster, it's a little bit warmer, and so they're also going through their food supply and their nutrient supply a lot more quickly. So they would deplete the nutrients faster than normal, which also causes stress. So every morning when we would get back to work, some poor intern had tank duty. And tank duty was you'd have to go around and smell all of the tanks. And this important job of monitoring tank health is usually given to an intern because if the yeast were stressed, they would create hydrogen sulfide, which can smell like rotten eggs. And sometimes at low levels, to me, it, it smells like sweat or body odor. Um, and that can translate to sometimes as like, like, like a stinky cheese, like a sweaty cheese. Uh, so the intern's job was to open the lid and get a big whiff of maybe rotten eggs or body odor. Um, and they would have to check like 20 or 30 tanks. So you can imagine starting your 6 a.m. shift by smelling a row of like 30 strangers' armpits. So that's usually why it's an intern's job. Sometimes, but not always. Um, and okay, so what happens when we found a tank? So whenever we found a tank that had this issue, we had a few tools that we could use. And one was to aerate it. So if the yeast depleted the oxygen, they would also get stressed. So we would aerate the tank. We'd do like a pump over, kind of open it up and splash some, some air into the tank. And this would help remove the aroma by volatilizing most of it. And then it would also give a fresh dose of oxygen to the yeast so they could continue a healthy fermentation. Another thing we could do is add nutrients. So basically giving them like a vitamin snack. Um, and then the third thing we could do if things were too far gone, if the aerating didn't work and the snack didn't work and things were just too far gone, the aroma was too strong, you could add a diluted copper solution to bind up the hydrogen sulfide and remove it from the wine. But this was a very last resort. And so after nine years in the wine industry, I know the smell of stressed yeast very, very well. And every so often, I come across a coffee that has had an extended fermentation, and it's really funky. For most people, it's funky in a positive way because it's different, and they're delighted that a flavor like that can be naturally found in coffee. But I am not delighted. I am reminded of my days as an intern. And once, about a year ago, I tasted a coffee that smelled like goat cheese, and some people loved it. It was selling really well. But for me, I couldn't get the idea that that yeast 
that the yeast and nut fermentation were stressed, and for me, it showed a lack of skill in managing the fermentation. Um, but I do realize that sometimes people do it on purpose. I recently learned that Scandinavians put like cheese in their coffee, and you've probably heard of putting butter in your coffee. But if you Google it, you'll see that this is actual like blocks of what look like orange cheddar cheese, like just blocks of cheese in their coffee cups. So maybe for them, they could skip the trip to the store and get cheese tasting coffee all in one cup. But I also wonder if this practice, the practice of putting cheese in your coffee, also came from having access to really low quality coffees. When I was studying sensory science, we had a section about wine and cheese pairings because they're very popular, and my sensory teacher showed how cheese works to dampen rather than enhance flavors. So the conception is, you know, wine and cheese pairings because it'll make your wine tasting experience um, heightened. It will it will add something to it. Um, but what my teacher showed was that it's kind of an opposite effect. It is a more pleasurable experience, but because the cheese is removing flavors. It's dampening flavors, not because it's necessarily bringing something out. And this research uh, was done where they would collect the saliva in your mouth and see how the compounds in cheese interacted with the enzymes in your saliva, because the composition of your saliva affects the way that you taste, and the rate at which you salivate also impacts how you perceive those flavors. So if you produce more saliva than your neighbor, you will have a different taste experience. So in school, we had to count the number of taste buds on our tongue uh, to measure if we were super tasters or regular tasters. And then we also had to measure our saliva flow rate. And they put this like tube inside of your cheek and then they just collect saliva over a certain amount of time. Um, And then in my microbiology class, we had to swab our butts and grow our own E. coli in a Petri dish. So I hope that just gives you an idea of uh, what a cool school UC Davis is. I love the program. Anyway, that was a super long digression. Um, Back to how I approach designing a fermentation. Okay, so at this stage, I start by categorizing color and perceived ripeness. I rarely measure bricks of the cherries. Um, I wanted to do an episode all about bricks, but the patrons voted for terroir first, so I'm working on that. I'm working on that episode, and eventually we may have an episode about bricks because I think it's really important, but I've got other things coming up with other episodes. Um, let's see. Let's see if there's anything else I want to say. Um, I think the last thing I'll say about how I approach designing a fermentation or how I approach kind of working with my clients is that there are some consultants that have found success by replicating what has worked in the past and then applying it to new situations. So kind of having like a method and then just applying that in different ways, uh, sorry, in different places. But this can be tricky if a method that had success was largely because it was developed in a country that had a hot, dry climate, and then you're trying to apply it in a cool, wet zone. So for this reason, I'm really concerned about the popularity of dry processed natural coffee in humid parts of Central America, where the wet method is a lot more appropriate. So I prefer to look at each location as kind of a blank slate. And of course, there are some principles that remain from location to location, but for the most part, I like to treat every mill very differently and find what works there instead of trying to apply a formula. Okay, next question. Hi, I'm Nick. We don't have the audio for this next question, so I'll be reading a question from Jesus. Hello, Lucia. How have you been? I became one of your patrons, and I enjoyed listening to your podcasts. I have a question if it is possible. Does the coffee density change according to the post-harvesting process? 
If it was the same variety, same climate, same farmer doing washed honey and natural, would the natural be denser than the rest of them? So I really like this question because it it's kind of a simple concept, but it challenges an old paradigm. And density, so density is a high priority for producers because coffee is generally paid by weight and prices are set per pound. So having denser coffee means having more money. And so we think back to the, the incentives for producers was high yields and dense coffee so that they could make more money. Um, but one of the, the, the changes that we're trying to make now is to value quality. But there's still this connection between density um, and and perceived quality. So this is what I would like to sort of untangle. And one of the reasons why fermentation was neglected for so long was that if you could mechanically wash the coffee and you skip the fermentation, the coffee was denser. So not only were we getting to the end product faster, the end product being a dried seed, but they also noticed that the coffee was denser and this was a positive. So this led to many people saying that removing the mucilage with uh, mechanically with water was better because the yields were better and remember it wasn't really based on flavor because we've seen that some of those coffees tend to be rather boring and really their biggest claim to fame is that they don't have defects so it's not that they're amazing it's that they're not bad so yes it's been known for a long time that when you have a long fermentation the coffee can lose density um, this is because when the seed is wet, there is an exchange between the material on the inside and the outside, right? So we know that we can soak coffee and get caffeine to come out. And so, of course, if there's things that can come out of the seed, um, other things are coming out, not just the caffeine. So that's including the glucose and fructose. And then that's the principle of why fermentation works is that the flavors on the outside of the seed can also get to the inside. Um, but this is back to the principle, in a washed coffee, the glucose and fructose can leave the seed. So Jesus is correct that a natural would be denser than that exact same coffee if that coffee was washed. So to be clear, it's not that naturals are always denser, it's just that the same coffee processed in a dry processed natural way would be denser than, it, than if you took that same coffee and did an extended fermentation uh, wash process. However, this is not entirely bad news. Uh, one important thing to begin to untangle is the density of the green coffee and the perceived body in the beverage. So while the glucose and fructose may leach from the inside of the seed to the outside, once it's outside, it can be converted by yeast into flavor compounds. So a green seed may be slightly less dense, but yeast can create polysaccharides that add to the mouthfeel of the coffee. And so that in your mouth, a slightly less dense seed will have more weight and can be kind of um, like syrupy. And a similar principle can be used for producers who are concerned that the sugar will leave the green seed, right? So the glucose and fructose sugar are, are going out and therefore reduce the sweetness of their coffee. But glucose in the seed does not directly translate to sweetness in the cup because of the roasting step. So coffee must be roasted and that those compounds are translated into, they're transformed into something else. So those reducing sugars get converted by roasting to other compounds. So yeast can't add sweetness in the traditional sense of adding more sugar because that's their fuel source, right? So by design, anything that has yeast will have to have less sugar. But with those coffees gain, what they have instead is actually perceived sweetness. Because if a coffee tastes like strawberries and honey, your mind will fill in the blank and perceive it as sweet, even if there's no sugar. 
So when you let a coffee ferment, you can create fruity esters and then you can build polysaccharides that add body. So what you lose in density is not negatively impacting the coffee flavor, um, but it can affect its density. So again, if you're only selling coffee by weight, then this method is not good for you. But if you're able to sell the coffee by flavor, um, by the resulting cup quality, then the density becomes a little bit less important um, when we're talking about these flavors. Hello, Lucia. My name is Tyler. I'm from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, and so my question is, if I bring a smack pack of microbes that uh, brewers use to brew beer to a farm and I cultivate those organisms and then say I spread them out onto all the cherries all over the farm, uh, would that completely decimate the farm and its microbiome? Uh, I should clarify, I do not want to do this simply curious what would happen. Thanks. So just like Tice, there is logic in this idea that we must be careful about introducing certain species into a new habitat because there is a risk that they could become an invasive species. However, Tyler specifically mentions a beer culture. And if you're buying commercial cultures like something a, a beer brewer would use, I do not think that this kind of invasive um, overtake would happen. And that's a couple of reasons. Um, the first reason is think about the business implications. If a brewery sold you a packet and then the yeast were able to dominate and live forever, they would never sell you another one. So it's not in a company's best interest to have or sell you an everlasting microbe or an everlasting you know, mix of microbes because um, they want to keep selling you yeast. So think about it like probiotics. When you need help changing your gut bacteria, you don't take one probiotic pill one time and then your gut is changed forever. You have to take a probiotic pill every single day. It's not just a one and done because the stomach population keeps taking over. So you have to keep reintroducing the strains that are you know, beneficial or the strains that you want to, to change in your gut. So I'm not saying it's not possible to you know, introduce an invasive species or something foreign that can dominate the fermentation in you know, whatever way. Maybe it's positive, maybe it's negative. Um, I'm just saying it's unlikely for that to happen from a commercial starter, just for the economic reasons. It's, it's unlikely that you'll find that in one of the um, commercial packets of yeast or bacteria that are used to ferment other food products. But one exception that comes to mind uh, is the yeast Brettanomyces. I have a whole episode <laughs> that talks a lot more about Brettanomyces in particular. Um, I think that's episode number four. But beer brewers like to use this yeast, and it's becoming increasingly common because it has such a complex and varied flavor contribution. Um, and if that yeast gets introduced into a winery, you can't get rid of it. A winery's only hope is to manage it. All you can do is like keep its levels really, really low and prevent it from growing, but you can't ever completely get rid of it unless you like burn the winery to the ground and then just build a new one or move. So this is one species that I would be really careful about introducing because, again, it's really hard to remove. Like once it gets into, into the location, it's hard to eradicate. Uh, a different thing to consider, so a second reason why I don't think introducing uh, a commercial yeast strain to a new location is going to have like these negative effects where it can completely take over is that 
Yeast is an organism with only so many generations. So we talked in episode 15 that the primary metabolism is to produce alcohol. And when we talk about flavor, what we're really interested in is the secondary metabolites. Um, And those have a finite lifespan. So as an example that I hope works, um, I've been getting into gardening and like almost everybody else during this pandemic. And I learned that cut flowers like tulips and dahlias are replanted every year, even though the plants themselves are perennials. So for truly spectacular blossoms, they're only good their first year, even though the plants could live for, I don't know, 20 years. So for the professionals, flowers like these are less beautiful if the plant continues to flower year after year. They say the flowers are less beautiful because less of the energy goes into creating this blossom and goes more into um, the rest of the plant's kind of growth and metabolism. So the energy that the plant puts into the flower decreases. So for an amateur gardener, you could plant tulips and see them bloom and let them die back and come back naturally year after year. And for me, an amateur, like I see tulips in my neighborhood and they pop up and they look just as beautiful to me the next year. But not for a professional. A professional can already detect that the quality of the blossom has decreased. So for the professionals who grow cut flowers, they only use that first generation and then start over again. So like a cut flower, um, yeast will only perform the secondary metabolism well for a few generations, even though the yeast themselves could live for a very long time. Another example of this is a grapevine. So a grapevine can live to be 100 years old, but their fruit quality severely declines after about 25-ish years. Um, The plant is still alive, but it no longer puts the same energy into its fruit, so it's replanted much before the end of its life. And if the climate is hotter, like uh, in India, where they make wine, and there is more than one harvest per year. So you're putting more stress and pressure on this crop to reproduce, and you're therefore shortening its life. So a grapevine in Napa could last 25 years, but in India, perhaps it only lasts 15 before it needs to be replanted because it's all, it's all spent, it's, it's tired. So this is part of what you need to consider if you want to keep a starter culture going in your coffee mill. It's a way to save money, but you can't stretch it indefinitely because the yeast get tired and the metabolism that makes those aromas, um, the, the, the beneficial parts, the secondary metabolites, those go away. But Lucia, what about sourdough, you may be asking? Yes, some cultures of sourdough are decades old and they still make fantastic bread and some, you know, get, get much better with age. Um, this is true. But in bread making, the primary metabolism, the production of CO2 that makes bread rise, that's the primary function of the yeast. So the yeast are already performing their primary metabolism. They're they're doing their job. We're not necessarily relying on them so much for the secondary metabolites. And that's why you can have a sourdough starter that's, you know, 80 years old that so-and-so's great-grandmother had and that you're still keeping alive. It's because they perform different functions, um, the yeast that needs that's needed for the sourdough to rise versus the yeast that we want to create these really delicate flavors in a coffee or in a wine. So if you want a yeast that produces CO2 bubbles in your coffee, you can keep that culture for decades. But if you want to produce peach and jasmine notes, you're likely going to have to refresh it often. One last note about using beer yeast as a starter for coffee. Some people think that because they prefer beer to wine, that they should use beer yeast for their coffee fermentation. And I do not recommend this. 
Even though beer and wine both use a strain Saccharomyces cerevisiae, you'd think that they would be equal for fermenting coffee, but they're not. Wine is made from grapes, which is a fruit, and a coffee beverage is made from coffee cherries, which is also a fruit, and therefore they have glucose and fructose as a readily available fuel source for yeast. If you take a grape or coffee cherry and squeeze it to get some of the juice out, then the yeast on its own peel will begin a fermentation. But if we think about beer, it's very different. Barley is not a fruit. The sugar source is not readily available to yeast. So if you have a stalk of barley and you toss some yeast on it, it will not ferment. Before you can turn the barley to beer, the sugar needs to be extracted by mashing. So in mashing is where the dried barley grains are mixed with water to make wort, and it's the wort that contains the sugar for the fermentation. And those sugars are predominantly maltose and maltotriose. It takes a lot of equipment and effort to make the sugars available to the yeast. I'm not saying it won't work. Some people have been able to use beer yeast to ferment coffee, but because you're feeding it maltose instead of directly glucose, the more readily available preferred food source, then it takes extra effort for the yeast to use it, and they can get stressed very quickly. I often find that beer yeast results in that cheesy aroma that you can sometimes find in coffee. And the last question today comes from Aaron in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. He asks, where can we buy your coffee, preferably unroasted? I am recording this in June, and as far as I know, there's only one roaster right now carrying coffee with a controlled yeast fermentation, um, and that's Phoenix Coffee here in Cleveland. Phoenix is the most consistent roaster where you can find coffee that I have worked on personally. Um, so definitely check there first. Check their website, which I'll also put in the show notes. You can also try reaching out to Balzac Brothers in Charleston, which has carried green coffee from Mapache in El Salvador, who is also one of my clients. And I heard that Crop to Cup Importers has green coffee treated with yeast from Rwanda. However, they're not a client, but I have consulted with them in the past. If you're looking for green coffee, I'll list a few other producers I have worked with that can be contacted directly. In Brazil, there is Luis from Fazenda, California. Ana from Fica Esperanza in Guatemala, Sofia and Giancarlo from Mapache in El Salvador, or Andres from Cairo, who's also in El Salvador. Um, you can also check out Boof Coffee in Rwanda, and that's Sam there, and Tommy from Greenwell Coffee in Hawaii. I will link all of their Instagram accounts in the show notes. I don't yet have an opportunity for small quantities of green coffee, for example, for home roasters. At some point, I think it would be really great to have a partnership with Sweet Maria's or maybe an importer um, to carry some of these yeast-treated coffees that you can buy in small quantities. But right now, they're really just, you know, full full lots. So if you're looking for five to ten bags of coffee, um, definitely check them out. But if you're just looking to buy a pound or two of green coffee, I don't have a good answer for you yet. Um, maybe you guys do. If somebody listening has an idea of how to make this happen, I would love to hear about it. You can, you can shoot me an email with your ideas. Okay, that's all the time I have for today. I want to thank all of my patrons, but a special thanks to Tice, Jesus, Tyler, Ariel, and Aaron for their questions. And hey, did you notice that there are no questions from women? Ladies, coffee ladies, where are you? Don't be shy. Please send me your questions too. Um, if you want, you can sign up for my newsletter at lucia.coffee. That's L-U-X-I-A. And that's an infrequent newsletter. It's only twice a month whenever there's a new podcast coming out, but you get 
um, a heads up and a little bit more information that I don't always get to share here on the podcast. So anyway, thanks for listening. And remember, life's too short to drink bad coffee.